just as in sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned for, from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the, that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought con condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, good to be with you this morning. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here. If you're new, uh, great to be with you. You've been, a, been around a while. Uh, still glad you're here. This is awesome. Um, why are you so full of hope? Uh, that's the question that this passage is actually unpacking. Last week, uh, Pastor Casey talked about how justification by faith changes everything. And, and this passage is asking the question, why are you so confident? Why are you so full of hope? And this is the kind of hope, this isn't like wish fulfillment hope. You know, the kind of hope where, like, I hope I get the job, or I hope Aaron Rodgers comes back next year, right? Sorry, I'm not a Packers fan, so it's a little bit of a dig. Um, biblical hope is, it's a certainty. It's something that is true, it's expectant. And last week we saw in Romans 5, 1 through 11, that for those who put their faith in Christ, the future is not one of judgment or death, but is abounding with hope and eternal life and friendship with God and the glory of God. And the question is, how can you be so confident in that? Like, how can you know that's your future? And by the way, what you hope, what you think about your future, that actually affects you in the present. Right? Like, we all know that in this season, right? Right, when that COVID-19 vaccine hit, right? It was like, oh my word, when, when do I get it? And all of a sudden, lights change, things change when those things happen, right? When you, when you know your future, it changes you in the present. Um, how can you be so confident? How can you be so full of hope? Let me put it this way. If you were to just think for a moment about God's expression, His face, His posture towards you, what would you 
what would you say it would be like? Would it be one of indifference? Would it be one of apathy? Would it be one of disappointment? Would it be one of anger? What's his expression right now? You know, last week we, we saw Romans 5, 1 say that because of faith in Christ, because of what he's done, that you're justified and you have peace with God. There's no longer condemnation. You have, you're at peace with him. And then it said in verse 2 that you have access by faith into this grace. And that's saying not only are you at peace with God, but you have friendship with God. You have access into a relationship with him. In other words, Paul is saying because of the gospel, for those in Christ, there is one of eternal life and friendship with God and the glory of God. Let me put it this way. One of the things that came out last week, too, was that in our suffering, we can actually, in, our, in the midst of our suffering, we can have hope. Think about that for a moment. Like, you know, um, the anxiety you face, the loss you've walked through this last year. Um, you know, and, you know, th- this week I got my hair cut, and um, I, she got done... And I looked on the floor, and on the floor, for the first time, I noticed there was more gray than the other colors. And all of a sudden, right, like that's a reminder to me, right, that like I'm aging, I'm, I'm mortal, and, and not to get morbid, but like my body's going to be put in a box someday. And, you know, here's the deal. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, he once penned these words to a fellow Christian who thought they were dying. And he said this, Our Lord says to you, Peace, child, peace. Relax, let go, I will catch you. But listen for a moment. Like, how can you know, how can you be confident that when those final moments are up, that there'll be someone to catch you? Do you understand how this future hope, how it rushes right into the present, even when you're getting your hair cut? Like, this is what we're talking about here. And and Paul is, in this section, he's going, how can you be so confident in that? How can you know? How can you be so confident that your future is one of eternal life and friendship with God and the glory of God? Well, if you've ever watched Star Wars you may just have an inside track on this passage. Um, Did you know that there have been times where Star Wars has been called kind of the the tale of two Skywalkers? The first Skywalker, Anakin, gave in to temptation to the dark side, and death and destruction and chaos followed. And in contrast, the second Skywalker, Luke, faced the same temptation but was faithful and obedient, and life and freedom followed. And George Lucas, the writer, said that the central theme of episodes four to six was the redemption of Anakin by Luke. And Paul, in this section, he shows us that the reason one can be so confident their future in Christ is one of abounding hope and life and fellowship and friendship and the glory of God is because the entire story of history comes down to two men. 
two Adams, and it's about the redemption of the first Adam by the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. So why? Why can we be so confident? Why can one be so certain that the future in Christ is one of abounding hope, eternal love, and life, and fellowship, and the friendship with God, and the glory of God? Three things this morning we're going to see in this passage. There's a pattern between Adam and Christ. There's two differences between Adam and Christ. And then lastly, there's one similarity between them. So let me pray, and we'll step in. Father, uh, we look to you this morning, and we ask you uh, in this passage that you would meet us, that uh, because of your abundant love and your grace and your mercy, that your, this truth in your scripture would grant us confidence in the hope that you've given us in your Son. We pray you just meet with us now. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, the pattern. Uh, so at the end of verse 14, listen to what Paul says. He says this, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, the language of type, or you could say pattern, is language that prefigures that what God is going to do someday, fully and forever, in the working of Christ. So, let me give you an example of a type. There's a number of them in, in the Scriptures, but one would be the temple. Um, if you go back to the Old Testament, this was the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the place where people went to go have like, to be in his presence. It was the temple. It was a physical place. Yet what's really interesting is that Jesus, when he comes in the New Testament, he says to the temple, he says, I'm going to destroy this place. In three days, I'll, I'll build it up again, basically. It's in John. And what Jesus is saying there, he's saying, actually, here's the deal. This temple, this is a type. This is actually pointing to me. This is a shadow. This is, and I'm ultimate do you want to know where God's presence dwells? It's with me. Do you want to know where you actually meet with God? It's me. It's one type. And right here, Paul is, Paul is writing, saying, hey, Adam's another type. He's prefiguring, he's pointing to something Christ is going to do. So what is it? Look at verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, notice the progression here. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And because of this, death came. And just think for a moment, just so you know this, like, death is not natural. Biblical, it's not natural. Like, it's, it's not what it was meant to be. But because of sin, it entered. And then it says, because of this, death came to all men. It's spread to all men. Now, here's the critical juncture to understand what's happening here. After it says, death spread to all men, it says this, because all sinned. Now, just pause for a moment. You might think that Paul is saying is that the reason we die is because we are like Adam and we sin. Which, by the way, we've seen it throughout Romans. That's true. But Paul is saying something different here, and we're just going to do a quick grammar lesson, okay? So get our English, you know, like class open here. But the verb sinned is in a certain tense. Paul could have picked other tenses, but he picked this tense. 
So this is why we believe Scripture is sufficient. This is why we believe Scripture is true, because Paul picked this aorist tense, and the aorist is always points, it always points to a single past action. And one commentator put it this way, so by using the aorist here, Paul is saying that the whole race sinned in one single past action. Did you catch that? In other words, Paul is saying we die because we are in Adam. When he sinned, so did we. Um, in philosophy, theology, it's, it's often called federal headship, and it's the concept of solidarity that's based on a legitimate relationship with a person where whatever that person achieves or loses, you achieve or you lose. And Paul actually goes on to illustrate his point in verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now there's quite a bit going on in those couple of verses. I actually posted in sermon discussion on Slack like a two-minute blurb on this because I'm not going to be able to cover all of it today. But to suffice to say, I want to point out one thing here. Paul is saying people died from the time of Adam to the time of giving of the law before there's anything explicit about God's commands. And so Paul is saying because Adam is the head of humanity and he's forfeited righteousness for all of humanity, that's why everybody died, because of what he did. And guys, this is the type. This is, this is the piece that connects the rest of the text. This is why you can be so confident in what Christ has done, because this is it. Adam, when he sinned, it was a determinative act that resulted in death for all his descendants, all those who belonged to him. It was one act. Now, can we just for a moment just pause there? Um, your head might be hurting, but you also might be going, wait a second, this doesn't seem fair, okay? Like, if you're tracking right now, you might be saying something like, how can I be guilty for something that I didn't even do? Or how about this, how can I be guilty? Like, I wasn't even there. I didn't even get a shot, you know? So three things for you if you're wrestling with this, and you should be. Do you understand what this is saying? You should be wrestling with this. this. This rubs us wrongly in some ways. First of all, consider your cultural moment. Um, you may know this, but we live in the Western world, and you didn't choose to be here, but we're, we're hyper-individualistic here, right? Like, I mean, just consider like William Henley, the, 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 the spirit of the poem he wrote, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. It's weaved into the very fabric of our culture, it's like, what I do, I'm responsible for myself. And here's the other deal. You know, other cultures, like Eastern cultures, they don't have as much of a problem with this concept. Because they're not individualistic. They understand the individual is connected to a broader family and a tribe or a clan. And the solidarity of those relationships is bound up in what they achieve and what they lose. In other words, the reason why you and I may have problems with this is because of the very culture we're in. But remember, we have to be careful here. Like, Scripture is our authority. Our culture does not trump Scripture. 
But also personally, think about it this way. Do you really think you would have done a better job than Adam? I mean, I don't know. Like, do you really think if you were there that you would have done something differently? Are we that prideful? One pastor pointed out this way. All of us, even though we weren't there, we've all ratified the choice of Adam. We've all said in one way or another, like, God, I know better than you. We've all said in one way or another, I'd rather do what I want to do, not what you say. We've all ratified it. But thirdly, this is perhaps the most helpful one, is Paul is not trying to pin us in a corner giving us no hope. Remember, he's showing us Adam is a pattern of the one to come. In other words, just as Adam came and his actions, his one act was determinative for all that belonged to him, so there is one coming whose actions will be determinative to all those who belong to him. And that's actually where Paul goes next. And these are the two differences between Adam and Christ. He introduces us to this work of Christ here in in verse 15. He says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. Paul's making a distinction here. There's two differences between the work of Adam and and the work of Christ. And the first is the result. Look at the end of 16. It says this, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Um, Notice the distinction there. The result is completely different. Adam, what was the result? The result was legal guilt before God. You're guilty. What does Jesus do? He brings justification, which means he undoes it. He brings about no guilt and a declaration of your righteous. And notice too in that verse, it's interesting, it says one trespass, guilt, right, like condemnation, and then notice how it says many trespasses, thinking about all the collective sins, Jesus' work makes it not guilty makes you declared righteous. Look at that distinction. The result is different. And then look at verse 17. It says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see the two distinctions of the results here? With Adam, it brought a kingdom of death where death reigned. What Christ did, and this is interesting, he says, Christ brings reign in life, is literally what it says, reign in life. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't say that in Christ life reigns, but rather those who receive his grace, they reign in life. I wonder if this is what Lewis meant when at the end of the Narnia Tales, you know, the the children become kings and queens of the whole land. They're reigning. Before that, they weren't. There, there, there used to be in Adam a servitude to death. But because of what Christ has done, all of a sudden, you reign in life. That's remarkable. It means you see it as kings and queens in this kingdom, free to love God and love others. All because of what Christ has done. 
So the first difference we see between Adam and Christ is, is the result. Think about that. It's, it's, it goes from a, a legal, legal guilt to a legal verdict of declared righteous, from death to reigning in life. But then secondly, it's the power. Um, two times in verse 15 and verse 17, I'm going to read then in verse 15 here. It says this, um, For as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Listen to that language, the much more. Language of much more. Not equal, but much more. Verse 17 says, Death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. In other words, Paul is saying that the work of the second Adam, this true and better Adam, Jesus, his work completely overwhelms, completely covers, undoes all the effects of the first Adam's work. Adam's trespass brought about justice, exactly what we deserve, but grace, it abounds. It provides an abundance of what is needed. So just think about this for a moment. Where legal guilt and death reigned, the second Adam brought, brought a declaration of righteousness. He brought a way in which you can reign in life, a new record, a new freedom to live for God, and that it's more than sufficient to overwhelm the work of the first Adam. Are you starting to understand why this question of how can you be so confident why can you have so much hope in this gospel? Lastly, there's a similarity between these two. And we see this in verses 18 and 19. Paul writes this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And see, here's a similarity. All people in this passage stand in relationship to one of two Adams. Do you notice that? In the first is condemnation. The second is life. And notice what's contrasted. Particularly verse 19, it says it was Adam's disobedience and Jesus' obedience. Think for a moment. Go back to in the garden. Think about it. The first Adam, if you obey, you will have life. You will have life. You will live. And yet, what do we see about the second Adam? Philippians tells us that he became obedient to death, which meant for Jesus, if you obey the Father, you die. And the first one was promised life, and he disobeyed. And the second one was promised death, and he obeyed. Like, do, you, do you see the contrast? Do 
Jesus is the true and better Adam. Which means for those that belong to Christ, not only is the penalty paid for Adam's first sin and for all of our collective sins afterwards, but Christ merits for those who trust in him the reward for his perfect obedience. Even the obedience unto his death. I was reading this week, um, there's a guy named Jay Gresham Machen. He's the founder of Westminster Seminary. And there's a moment where he was at the end of his life and he wrote a telegram to um, John Murray, another theologian. And he wrote this, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. Think about it. But most, a lot of us, we, we, we look at Christ and we, we do, we rightly look at the cross, but what, what, what Machen is saying there, look, look at his obedience. Meredith Klein wrote this in light of that. He said, Machen knew that the meritorious work performed by his Savior had been reckoned to his account as if he had performed it. Why can you have hope? How can anyone have hope that your future is one of eternal life and friendship with God and the glory of God? How can any of us have hope? Paul is showing us that the true and better Adam and his one act of obedience that undoes all the work of the first Adam, that this is why one can be confident and the question really is simply this, it's who do you belong to? I mean, that's really the question. And, you know, Paul specifically here is running primarily to provide hope for those who put their trust in him, for those who are Christians. But let me just say this, if you're listening, you're not a Christian, know this, it's not, it's not something you achieve, it is something you receive. Verse 17 it says, who have received the abundance of grace. It's just receiving. It's trust in what Jesus has done. It's all it is. And you might say, but you, I mean, you, you might just say, but you know, pastor, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my track record. How do you know that this grace is sufficient? You know, one of my favorite verses out of this is verse 20. It says this, so now that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, that, that language of grace abounded all the more, it's, it literally could be super abounding. It's like sin goes here and grace just goes way over the top. In other words, God's grace overwhelms all. You can't you cannot outsin this God. Do you know that? Who do you belong to? If you don't know, run to him. Run to the true and better Adam Christ. And if you belong to him, listen, anchor yourself in this hope.
myth, like in, in city group life this week, if you're in one of our city groups at Redeemer City, ask these questions. Like personally, ask the question, where do you need this hope this week? Where do you need it? And then secondly, begin to ask, where do those around me in my group, where do they need this hope? Let me give you one example. I mean, think for a moment of just how you view yourself, your identity. We've seen from Romans 1 to Romans 5, the depth of our sin and the height of God's love. Just think for a moment. The God of the universe knows you to the very depth of who you are, even more than you know yourself, knows how broken and sinful you are, and yet loves you to the heights. Like, that changes the present moment. That changes your identity. I was having a conversation with a couple friends a number of weeks ago, and both these friends are very accomplished, very competent people in their field. And we were just having a conversation about how this gospel was taking shape in our lives. And what was interesting is that every one of them to a T talked about how easy it was to find their identity in their horizontal performance at work. In other words, it was kind of like, you know, like if I have a good job review or if I get a raise, well, then I'm, I'm somebody. But what they began to say is, hey, there's, there's something greater than that. There's something that God has done in Christ that like that vertical thing, that gives me poise and stability. That gives me an anchor. Do you understand? Like that's how it rushes into the present. And some of you, right, like let's be honest, if you're a teenager, it's like my grades, my relationships, my friendships. Some of you, it's, it's your, you're a mom or you're a father, you're, you're whatever it is, your, your spouse or your single or whatever it might be, you can oftentimes run to those horizontal things. But do you understand how this, this gospel changes everything? And it's all because, it's all because of what Christ has done, the true and better Adam. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, and listen to this language, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and he has set me free. That's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son. And Jesus, we praise you for your active obedience in the midst of our disobedience. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we pray that that hope would permeate, would change, would transform us even now. We praise you and we give you thanks. We ask this all in your name. Amen.